0: Hi, Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, My name is Steve Fake. I'm with Just World Educational, and I'm happy to be here today with Ian Williams uh, on this 2017 United Nations Day. (laughs) Um, Ian is a longtime correspondent and uh, follower of the United Nations, um, and just uh, released a new book on the United Nations. So, um, happy to be talking with you today. In <laughs> <laughs> um, you can't this, see it properly. <laughs> the book is is titled uh, Untold, and it's published by Just World Books, uh, due out officially November 7th, but available um, uh, now on your online booksellers and so on. Um, so why don't we start off by uh, discussing what the United Nations Day is. What, what is today? Well, today is
1: the... It's the anniversary of the signing of the Charter in San Francisco in 1945. But uh, it's interesting, people forgot uh, Dan Plesch from SOAS in London actually discovered that it wasn't the first UN Day. The first UN Day was actually June the 14th, 1942. Mm -hmm. Because people forget the United Nations Organisation, which we have now, was not the original United Nations. The original United Nations was the 26 countries who signed up to defeat Hitler. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the, there was actually... The United Nations Correspondence Association actually had a membership book going back to 1942 because they had a United Nations press office here in Manhattan. And it was... Uh, you know So it was a functioning organisation. And the US loved it. They had parades in towns <laughs> all over the United States but June the 14th, 1942 and 1943, they had military parades, veterans' parades, flag UN flags flying, uh, and the UN flag then was actually was different. Um, it was four red bars to symbolise uh, FDR's four freedoms. But I'm, I'm just showing this to show that the US was very integrally involved in the foundation of the UN, uh, and then in 1945 it sort of, Started And uh, somehow, in an Orwellian way, the previous organisation was shoved down the memory hole, as indeed, of course, was the League of Nations, which uh, expired on the day that the UN Charter was signed. And basically, the League of Nations deeded itself and all of its works over to the United Nations organisation, as they used to call it then.
0: I mean, it's quite a shift from today when in the last, uh, certainly in recent memory, uh, the last several decades, uh, the United Nations has often been not uh, discussed with favor in the U.S. kind of political climate, uh, the way politicians talk about the United Nations is not f- often positive.
1: It's almost disappointing, you know, because what 15, w- when, I, when I wrote uh, the UN for Beginners in, uh, in, for the 50th anniversary, the UN was on everyone's lips and it was being vilified because people thought it important enough to vilify. It was on their mind enough. <laughs> you know, the, um, the, the people actually thought the UN had a fleet of black helicopters. that were going to fly in peacekeepers and take over. There were movies made about it. Uh, I remember I mean, that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I went and debated with all sorts of crackpots who thought the UN was uh, the antichrist. the Secretary General was the... It was the antichrist, and it was all an attempt to take over and subvert american values but in fact the u n in many ways was the epitome of uh, the better american values as uh, as epitomized by fDR and the four freedoms uh, the u n wrote the charter, but it 's interesting that the person who actually was the first unofficial secretary general who did all the work for the ch- for the conference was was Alger hiss, <laughs> who would later hold up for house on american activities and um, according to recent well-demonstrated books, was framed by Richard Nixon on completely spurious charges of espionage and and lived his life. I I did interview him uh, at one point and he said that when the plane flew from San Francisco, the the bag, the briefcase with the charter in had a parachute and he didn't. (laughs) That was you a, took it to Washington. There was a
0: fascinating tidbit in the book, and of course, <laughs> Elger Hiss is a name that is familiar to uh, you know all Americans fall uh, oh. civic class and so forth. But,
1: in civics class, But, but not, yes. that, well, not, not, not that part of, of it, yes. Yeah.
0: Um, I should mention, by the way, that uh, Just World Educational will be sponsoring a number of uh, speaking events with you um, in UN, uh, In the, uh, New York, D.C., um, and likely the West Coast in the in the new year. Um, so be on the lookout for details, follow us on social media and our website, and email us to uh, keep abreast of upcoming events. Um, but you've touched upon kind of the history of the United Nations, it was founded 70 years ago. Is it still relevant? Is it an antiquated organization? What's the significance of the UN today?
1: Well, this is antiquated. <laughs> I mean, it's been around a long time, it's been 70 years. and. Um, it's funny, I mean, I, I was thinking only yesterday. that I actually, span it. when I first started covering the United Nations in 1989, there were a lot of people I met uh, who were amongst the founder members. Mm-hmm. People like Sir Brian Urquhart, for example. He, 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 was, he was the very first employee. Um, and uh, he summed it up in other ways because uh, in The Bridge Too Far, he was the British officer who warned them that this was a silly thing to do, to parachute people <laughs> into German territory. So, uh, you know, he saw that the Second World War as natural continuation was with the United Nations and became the first employee. I uh, knew several other people who had started at the beginning. Uh, and these people were um, they were idealists about the principles, but they had no illusions about the organisation, you know, which was... it. Any organisation, especially an international one, is is a compromise. You know, as uh, Bismarck famously said that uh, if you w- want to eat sausages, you shouldn't watch them being made, and it's the same with treaties. You know, if you want to consume treaties, you shouldn't watch how they're made, you know, and uh, with lots of sordid compromises and horse trading and other details over the years. So that's part of the work of the UN. Um, you know, it's the sausage maker to the world in that sense. Right. But it's. Um, no, I mean, it, but it's the ideals, and you know, one of the things when I used to take people uh, into the UN, uh, if I teach, sometimes I take them in. I, my, my theory: John Bolton, who was uh, briefly the sort of ad interim American representative under Bush, um, he'd always said that he thought that the UN should be cut off at the tenth floor, and uh, you know, everything else was superfluous and. I actually went one better and said, I think it should be cut off at the fourth floor because that's as far as the tourists can get. (laughs) I mean, the point about the UN is that it's actually very effective as a symbol, Mm, uh, as as a manifestation of the principles of we the peoples, no more war, peace, etc. Whereas uh, when it tries to do things, it often messes up, (laughs) but... If the fact that it exists is something, and you see this, uh, it is one of New York's biggest tourist attractions, and people come there, and it's a sort of laying on of hands. They think this is, you know, a numinous site. It, it's a place with pregnant with possibilities. It symbolises the global order, which, you know, for all of its many faults, despite Vietnam and Syria and Afghanistan and the Balkans. I bet it's setting too pessimistic, but we haven't had World War Three yet, which is its biggest achievement. <laughs> the, the, fact that, the fact that the UN building is still there in New York and is yeah. not at the epicentre of a smoking nuclear crater <laughs> is a testament to its own success in some ways. I mean, I mean. So the world is a very
0: different place. Uh, the balance of power internationally is very different from what it was when the UN was created in the forties. But uh, you think it still serves a very important role
1: uh, in the world global order? Well, it, its role changed immediately, and um, people, you know, think oh, it's it, it's it, it needs reform. I and mean, it's it's actually a bit like the British constitution. It it changes. Um, mm-hmm. It's not so much that anyone sits down and does a rewrite on the on the UN Charter, because that's extremely difficult to get a majority for. But the functions change. I mean, my favourite was the military staff joint committee, which has been meeting every two weeks in the basement of the UN since 1945. And this is where the big five, the permanent five members, they have military officers who sit there planning the next war against the next axis. And, you know, they're the only... I actually raided their waste paper bin after one session and I just got uh, 6 times 7 equals 42, which was, I think, <laughs> in, in, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that's, that's the answer, really? <laughs> as I remember, to the question of the universe. So, so I don't know the military staff committee have been watching Hitchhiker's Guide and working it out, but they've done very little else since then. Um, yeah. And what we did get was the whole evolution. The biggest part of the UN's work now is peacekeeping. And the peacekeeping and peacekeeping forces are nowhere mentioned in the UN Charter. There's no provision for it. It's so you've yeah. got this whole thing that's gone up without anybody bothering going to the effort of trying to alter the, the Constitution, but it that has the Charter adapted. of the UN. It has adapted, and yeah. uh, the development work is much more extensive now than ever it was. And once again, because the UN is like a catalyst, it's there, things happen around it. So you've got a recently negotiated... Uh, Nuclear—a a, a, a comprehensive ban on nuclear weapons—it's pragmatic because it doesn't come into force until the nuclear weapon states sign it. Because it's pointless passing treaties if they're flagrantly uh, being disobeyed like that. Yeah. But there's other things like the international law of the sea, which was a masterpiece of um, negotiations. There's the criminal, the international criminal courts. None of them, you know, envisaged in the original. And a lot of them are work in progress. You know, the International Criminal Court has uh, issued indictments. It hasn't got the right people yet. But it make, makes people think twice. There are people from Henry Kissinger to Benjamin Netanyahu who tre- check with their yeah. lawyers and, as well as their travel agents before they go anywhere just right. in case an indictment has sprung upon them. And, you know, it, it's always a good thing if, uh, if if murderous tyrants have to think about the consequences. Because, remember, the basic rule of the world's uh, law for many years was that uh, as long as you kill, kill your own people in your own country, there is no there's no comeback at all. You know, it's, it's home right. scot-free. Total impunity.
0: Um, I should mention, by the way, that if uh, anyone is interested in asking Ian a question, um, please type it in the comments uh, below the Facebook p- uh, video, and we will do our best to incorporate it into the discussion. Um, just kind of going to, to very current uh, news, uh, the big headline last week related to the UN was the US decision to the Trump administration's withdrawal from UNESCO. Uh, what's your read on that whole development?
1: It's very difficult to do any read on anything about the Trump administration <laughs> because, you know, I mean, they don't do joined-up um, joined up politics, so uh, there's no telling what his problem is. Um I mean, he is actually less viscerally anti-UN than before. I mean, and you have to think of this is Donald Trump, property magnate in uh, New York. And if the UN were to pull out of New York, his property would halve in value. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the UN... So he got something to think about then. Well, the, the UN was actually built on a, a former slaughterhouse. And one of the reasons that land was bought by... Um, <laughs> that, that land was uh, bought by the Rockefellers from a real estate magnate who owned all the surrounding property who, who made a killing by, by the UN being there, you know, a much better neighbour than a slaughterhouse right. <laughs> and, and and lots of diplomats and UN staff and reporters and other people moving into the neighbourhood so you know, I, I, Trump is not fiscally anti-UN um, you know, he even offered to rebuild, the, um, uh, re- rebuild it when it was being refurbished he didn't, of course. It's like many of his promises, like the checks to veterans and stuff. But it's... Um, it, it's uh, so, UNESCO. Um, UNESCO's crime, was it recognised the state of Palestine? The UN has recognised the state of Palestine. The, the US implicitly recognised the state of Palestine. It says there should be two states. So this is simply pandering to um, not just not the Israel lobby as such, but the Netanyahu lobby, the Likud yeah. lobby. Um and the fact as, that as people, i understand though, it the us withdrew from unesco before israel. before israel did yeah now I mean, is, is, israel wanted to stay in there and create trouble and they're extremely good at creating trouble i mean you know they are uh, they continually shouting about things and uh, they shouted for example that, that hebron had been made a a, a palestinian world heritage site right it's yeah. in Palestinian territory. It, it, it's, it's in the territory which yeah. every treaty in the world recognizes as part of Palestine. Uh, the UN resolutions say that these are occupied territories and that Israel shouldn't be there. So Israel has no claim about this at all. It could say, please, pretty please, can you bear in mind, and which would have been a legitimate thing to do. But, uh, you know, it's the same with Jerusalem. It's... Uh, as far as the world's concerned, this is not Israeli territory, and no amount of swinging from the rafters by Netanyahu says so. Even the State Department, they still haven't moved the embassy to Jerusalem because, under UN decisions, it's uh, it 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 it's not part of Israel. By the way, it's also not the capital of Palestine either. But you know, people presume a bit on this. It's yeah. as the name, the partition treaty, marks it out as a separate UN-administered territory. But that's why there's no embassies there. No country will move their embassy there because it's not been recognized. And it's one of the interesting things about the UN is no one is secure in their title. Um, East Timor, for example, was occupied by the Indonesians brutally in a long-standing occupation. And the major point of Indonesian diplomacy for the first 10 years I was there easily was, um, was East Timor to make sure that resolutions didn't come up. So there were resolutions on the books, but the Portuguese and the friends of East Timor didn't dare push them because it was turning into a stalemate. There were more abstentions than votes for. It was clearly occupied territory. It right. was not recognised as, uh, as, uh, in, uh, as Indonesian territory. And I actually remember telling Ali Alitas, the Indonesian foreign minister, it's not going to be yours because you'll never persuade the UN to sign over the deed because there's enough countries... The bedrock principle of the UN was you cannot go and occupy somebody else's country. This is why Kuwait, uh, when Kuwait was occupied, if, uh, if Saddam Hussein had had the good sense to declare a friendly republic there and install pro-Iraqi military leaders and pull out, no yeah. one would have, the Bush would never, have, Bush senior would never have been able to get a coalition together to move him. But once he annexed it and declared it the 19th province of Iraq, that was when every single country in the world pretty much had a gripe. You know, this is what the UN is about. It's anti-annexation insurance. And Same with the Western Sahara. The Moroccans have been occupying Western Sahara. It is still not recognized. Almost every map you see, yeah. uh, you know, international, under international law, it is not recognized because they have not had an act of self-determination and there's a resolution on the book telling Morocco to get out. Um, so it, it's Although, the same with others.
0: just as in the case of Israel, Morocco does have powerful allies, but nonetheless, yeah. it hasn't been able to get Well,
1: Israel is one of the powerful allies, for example, of Morocco. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the parallels are quite uh, similar. Yeah. It's, it's the same. I mean, the, Russia is not going to get title to Crimea unless the UN says so, because it's a bedrock principle of international law. It's... Um, if you want to, and it's this what Kofi Annan called this the unique legitimizing authority of the UN, uh, and, and it, it does have this. I mean, it's yeah. it's, it's in an, under international law, it, it it has weight, a lot of weight. So, uh, I mean, what what do you think the
0: implications of the Trump administration and Nikki Haley's uh, representation there are for the United Nations for the next three four years? If no
1: longer not as overtly disastrous as it might appear you know I mean you know the visceral anti-trump crowd uh, which uh, well, he, he, even those who are, are more sort of contemptuous than viscerally <laughs> opposed um, he, he has not he has not really come up with a policy he said he wants to cut the money and that's part of the reason that he pulled out of UNESCO because were- the. US owed 500 million and like you said I mean the, uh, by the way, the Israelis had cut their dues down to almost zero, and the net result of that, by the way, is you lose your vote there anyway. But you were quite right; it was Israel saying "me too." It, you know, this was this was the lobby here, persuading, yeah. to, uh, you know, persuading to go against, um, per- persuading the US to pull out. Uh, and Nikki, Nikki Haley, um, well, she often behaves in the UN as though she's representing the israel lobby not israel again because there are people in israel with different opinions but you know yeah. she 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 picks up the likud apac uh, brief from washington and runs with it and you know she, she she's more she's more defensive of the israelis than the israelis on, on most occasions it's, it's it's quite stunning to watch <laughs> but uh very little of substance on you know sort of other issues although i think they've just uh They've just weighed in on Myanmar over the Rohingya, which is long overdue, of course. It's uh, Because that is a... Well, it's a humanitarian crime and uh, sure. a subject for the International Criminal Court coming up. But the Security Council has to agree to that, of course.
0: Um, so, tell us about your book. Uh, why did um, you write it? What, what, it's, what, what is it about?
1: Uh... Well, um, it's about the UN, untold. <laughs> um, <laughs> But also, uh, it's an attempt to make the UN interesting because all across the world, people are um, newsrooms at the UN. It's, oh. no, it, it's it's a bit like uh, sort of reciting "Thou shalt not commit adultery." It's much more fun watching adultery.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, it, it has a bit of an image. Of, of... It, it, it's it's much more it's much more fun watching war. It's <laughs> more interesting right. watching war than watching people try to avert wars. Yeah, so you're at an inherent disadvantage here, you know. The uh, news value is let's go with the adultery every time, and let's go with the military action. Um, but it's it's difficult to make it interesting, and one of the reasons is that a lot of the people who support the UN do so in a sort of um, a sort of pious New Agey way, you know. Oh, mm. wonderful UN, you know, nice, saintly, etc., etc. Well, you know, it, it, it isn't, and we want to introduce a level of reality into it. You know, it's yeah. it's a very good thing on balance, but it's got definite flaws uh, and, uh, and and serious problems. And this is the one of the problems is that when Donald Trump says the UN is corrupt, uh, well, not he says mismanaged and could do better. The first person to agree with him was Antonio Guterres, who had spent all these years as head of the UN Refugee Agency and is now Secretary General. And you know, I know, but. but secretary generals have actually complained to me. They've been trying to get somebody appointed for two years, and the Human Resource Department has frustrated them. Hmm. Yeah, I gave my free advice as a trade unionist. Sack them. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them, unless they appoint, sack them. And, and, and the, the Butcher's Garley did things like that, but uh, the others, you know, Kofi, for example, was far too nice to go around sacking people. <laughs> but quite a lot of people do deserve firing at the UN. I mean, there the, the, there's, the, there've been... Cases of sexual harassment, uh, which I've um, I've covered some myself over the years, and um, you know, there's abuse of authority. Uh, Are you talking about people. peacekeepers, or kind of like many inside the UN it's in itself? Yeah. With the, with the staff. But the peacekeepers is a separate case. Yeah, and it's like any organisation; it's not unique. Uh, Organisations pull, you know, they they, they they form a circle when attacked. Yeah, and one of the things when I first did the book, it was very mixed. It seemed, because anybody who criticised the UN at all was seen as instinctive, you know, pro-Western enemy of the United Nations, and it, it took me, I think, some years before people realised that actually, um, we persuaded them that the press was an essential part of the uh, of, of reforming the UN. We keep them on their toes. You know, right. if the internal organisation can't reveal that people are being, you know, corrupt or bullying or sexual harassment then the press should do it and, and force them into action, uh, which is what happened. But then, you know, the problem at that time, I remember um, people used to call me up and, and say, we're doing a story about waste waste mismanagement and corruption at the UN. And that was it. It was the trope um, you know, yeah. that the, the, they would produce it. And I would say, well, there isn't that much, actually. It doesn't have that much money. I, I mean, the, 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 the UN doesn't have enough money to be corrupt. <laughs> when, when, when they Fox... TV was jumping up and down about this oil for food program. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I, I, I was on the programs with them and said, this is the biggest financial scandal in the history of the world. I said, no, it isn't. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> and the, 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 the UN doesn't have that enough money to run a scandal, the biggest right. financial scandal right. in the world. And it turned out in the end, after all of that smoke, it was really an attempt by Fox and the, uh, and, and, uh, the Murdoch people to get Kofi Annan... because he'd said the war was illegal. Yeah, he, I mean, I it was, it you was, know, he, he was badgered into a corner by a BBC report, and they had to admit that the Iraq war was illegal, which it was. Uh, so they went out to get him, and they they invented this whole scandal. And the net result, you might remember, they found all sorts of things wrong. As you know, a couple of they spent a couple of hundred million going through the midden heap and finding a few gems in right. there. But in the end. The solid, tangible accusation about the oil for food that affected the UN was an allegation that one staff member had sixty thousand dollars in a bank account that he couldn't that he couldn't account to their satisfaction. He said it came from his uh, great aunt or whatever, and they said that it was a. (laughs) They said no, it wasn't. But but no pittance. It it was a pittance and an unproven pittance as well. Uh, But everybody's left no one remembers it now, the biggest financial scandal in the history of the world and everybody just ran with it, because you do it's the UN, it's corrupt, it's foreign <laughs> yeah, I,
0: I remember the, the drumbeat in the media for several years there and and uh, it's kind of fascinating to read the retrospective you give in the book you know, about how little amounted from all of that
1: yeah, well, was, it, it, it was a completely chimeric, invented scandal and now of course Kofi Annan is a revered elder statesman, whereas before you'd have thought he was a sort of a uh, heading to Rikers Island on the next ferry if, if you've read the local press. <laughs> yes.
0: um, so next week, uh, November 1st, there's a resolution due at the General Assembly to uh, condemn U.S. policy towards Cuba, um, which is kind of one aspect of a much broader longstanding U.S. isolation in many ways from uh, virtually the
1: rest of the world at the UN. Can you kind of talk about the U.S. role? Uh, not that the U.S. always loses the vote overwhelmingly. I mean, it's a bit like the Palestinian resolutions. Generally speaking, it'll be the U.S., uh, a couple of Pacific Island states which are 100% dependent on the U.S. for budget, and there, uh, and Israel. And the, the Israel one is fascinating. I, I meant to check, but I, I suspect that Israel used to vote with the rest of the world about this because it didn't like boycotts. There was an Arab boycott. On Israel, which the Israelis and the Americans fought against for years, Sure. so I mean it's yet another case of the U.S. Uh, you know, don't don't do as we uh, do as we do as we do do as we say, because uh, hey, nobody is boycotting and sanctioning anybody more than uh, the the United States. I mean, the the whole. Boycott and uh, disengagement. The US is doing it everywhere in the world. I mean, it's got to the point where it's it's hardly got anybody left to trade with. It's it's got so many sanctions against so many people, but it's so important it manages to get away with it. And um, Israel will go into the lobby and vote for this while Israeli representatives are shouting about boycott and yeah. disinvestment. <laughs> And, you know, sanctions.
0: and I don't think the American public, or for that matter
1: the American media, really convey just how isolated the U.S. often is in these votes of the U.N. Well, it's, it's not even popular with Cuban exiles anymore. What it is, is there's a few Cuban um, organizations with a lot of money. They're equivalent of AIPAC. I mean, if you remember, uh, Bill Clinton signed on for boosting the sanctions on Cuba after he got a large, um, after he got a fundraiser from the, Cuban Mascanosa from from the Cuban sugar barons in Florida, they gave yeah. they had a fundraiser, gave them half a million, and they bought American policy cheap. I mean, you know, American foreign policy is no mystery. It's it's <laughs> always a bargain basement if you know who to give the money to. Um, the UN, and, you the know, the UN I mean, can't do this. By the way, it's one of the problems. Uh, the UN doesn't have a lobby that will give money to people. <laughs> And, and the, the
0: U.S. kind of isolation wasn't always that way either. I mean, you talk about it in the book back in, uh,
1: what, I guess, kind of, when did that change? The 60s? Well, it was, um, the U.S. had an assured majority in the General Assembly until, into, into the 60s. And with decolonization, there was the rise of the non-aligned, and it lost its automatic majority. And it's no coincidence that that was when the U.S. started using its veto. Up till then it was the Russians in a minority yeah. in the General Assembly, which was, niet, niet, yeah. niet, and banged the shoes on the tables, etc. After that it was the US. And, and incidentally, lest everyone feels virtuous about it, the very first vetoes were about South Africa and Rhodesia, supporting apartheid in, 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 in southern Africa all of these people who come out for Martin Luther King and Mandela now were there voting (laughs) and vetoing resolutions, trying to do something about apartheid South Africa. Yeah, that tells you something. Um, I guess, can you tell
0: me something about uh, your views of of the real significance of the General Assembly and the um, Security Council today as they currently exist, and if you... There is a lot of talk about the need to reform the UN. Do you do you see the need to reform it? And if so, how Yeah, I mean it's
1: more of a case of reforming the members and how they do things. Um The uh the Security Council is sort of like the cabinet, it's the executive authority of the um of of, of, of the UN and the General Assembly is it holds the pair of strings to some extent. It levies uh, and, and 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 it sets standards. Uh but ever since the U.S. lost its majority, and ever since the General Assembly, especially on issues like Israel, uh, was taking a stand that Washington didn't like, we hear a constant drumbeat that uh, General Assembly resolutions aren't binding. They're binding in international law. What it is is they can't enforce them. So it's a bit like if um, it's a bit like saying murder is legal if you're not going to get arrested for it. <laughs> you know, it, it, it doesn't. It, yeah. What the General Assembly says has the force of international law. What it doesn't have is the force to enforce international law. Right. The Security Council technically does, because they can order sanctions, they can order military action. I mean, that's what it was all for. The Security Council was supposed to order the combined air forces, armies and navies of the great powers against any new kid on the block who are stepping out of line and, you know, over, overrunning borders. And... Um, that's pretty much where it's remained on that level but uh, it, it never actually happened except in the case of Iraq where the Russians actually backed the uh, UN over the restoring Kuwait's sovereignty yeah. and they felt very miffed about it ever since because the US showed no gratitude whatsoever and disregarded their views on everything and, and treated Moscow like it was a defeated power in its own right and uh, that's you know, this is what's given rise to Putin. Really, they—they they, they have um, their disregard for the Russians. Now, of course, they say, "Well, the Russians, uh, the Russians veto this and the Russians veto that." Well, you know, if you treat people rudely, they—they're going to say, "Hey, listen to me," and they're going to start beating their chests at you. Yeah. Um, we we should, we should get onto the Security Council because there's a big call for reform of the Security Council, and I'm sort of unpopular. Uh, I was actually went to Berlin and told the Germans that they shouldn't have a permanent seat in the Security Council. Didn't and go over well, I'm assuming. Well, actually it did. The Green Party came over cheering me. I see, you, you know, this is a cunning strategy. We like this one. And, um, and, no, because the last thing the Security Council needs is more permanent members. If we have five permanent members manage to get it in a permanent logjam, can somebody explain, please? Hmm how adding five extra potential vetoes is going to make it any better. And then to balance those five extra permanent members, they want to add a load of non-permanent members. And you're com- converting the executive committee into a mass meeting. You know, they're talking, talking in terms of a couple of dozen members of a body that's supposed to be a committee. You now, there are flaws. Some of the more important members, um, are, you know, sort of countries like like Brazil and Japan and Germany... Should be, uh, should be in there, but they shouldn't have a veto. And, and the most sensible proposal, not from any of them, is that they should be re-elected for longer terms, and they can be re-elected. At the moment, temporary members can't be re-elected. So you have a country that gets two years getting the diplomatic expertise and knowledge and know-how, and then it all goes and somebody else has to come. Yeah. So you have the five permanent members perpetually manipulating the rest. And, give, you know, they stroke them and welcome them and give them all the, the height of their diplomatic credentials. But then... Should anyone you know, have a veto? Should they? No. Except for two things. One is they have a veto over changing the veto. <laughs> the Security Council members can veto any change in the Charter. So we're stuck with the veto, basically. I do wish that countries like Britain and France would have the... Um, Savviness to stand up and declare that they would never use the veto except in purposes, you know, for purposes of national survival, whatever. <coughs> um, but the uh, you don't make you don't make uh, it, it. My example is the House of Lords has still has a hundred hereditary peers in Britain, yeah, the rest are nominated. Yeah, you don't make this is more democratic by doubling the number of hereditary peers i mean you just yeah. double you just double the inefficiency and you double the um the privilege and uh, that's uh at the moment we're spared from all of this because the putative members like india and germany and japan say they'll only have that they want a permanent seat but they want a veto with it so no one's prepared to give them a veto so they're stuck you know yeah. and and it, it's for all the duration of my time at the United Nations, I came here in 1989, um, they have been wrestling with urgent reform. Still <laughs> so urgent. Yeah, and, and the British are very canny about this. The British, um, who provide a lot of the diplomatic brains for the Americans, they made sure that the item wasn't the reform of the Security Council, but the enlargement of the Security Council, mm-hmm. which begs the question of permanent members, begs the question of vetoes and all the rest of it and, and that was a concession from the British because they basically didn't want any discussion at all for many years you know it's uh, I remember mentioning to one British foreign minister and he, he recoiled as I would assaulted him a public lavatory when I, <laughs> I mentioned that, what was Britain's attitude on reform a few years later they came out with the enlargement thing <laughs> um, we do have time for one or two questions from
0: the uh, comment section so let me Try to fit one or two of those in um we have a question from susan smith she asks uh, the general assembly established the security council can it reclaim it do away with it make it an organ of peace rather than war supporting the u.s military industrial complex and political
1: aims well the general assembly didn't create the security council they, they were all created together in uh, the initial act it's in the chromosomes in the mm-hmm. dna of the un <laughs> they're both there and um the veto, the other reason for the veto is it's actually the price we pay for keeping uh, Russia and China and the U.S. in, in, in the U.N. You know, the, if, 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 if you can't veto a nuclear superpower. You know, no matter how many resolutions the U.N. passes, you can't enforce them. And uh, in a pragmatic way, this is the price that we have, we have to pay for keeping them in. This is... Yeah. In a pragmatic way, this is why Guterres has to make nice to Trump. Because I'm quite sure Guterres has his own views on uh, Mr. Trump's intellect and ethics, uh, but his job as the Sec- as the Secretary General of the UN is to keep the UN on- keep the US on board. Right. <laughs> under under not on, not under all circumstances. I mean, when the US is in there, you can do things like you can refuse to authorize wars on Iraq, which is why. Right. Tony Blair and George W. Bush are now sort of uh, looking hauntedly over their shoulders waiting for the International Criminal Court arrest warrant.
0: Um, another question comes from Brian Hayes. Uh, he asks, Ian, are you familiar with the work of Soka Gakkai International in conjunction with the UN?
1: Yes, I mean, there are a lot of organizations. One of the things, <coughs> in fact, I think um, Butcher Scali didn't get as much credit as he deserved. He... He did a lot about bringing civil society, the non-governmental organisations, into the UN system, and it's it's really impressive how much of the peace work um, and the international conventions has been done by the NGOs. I mean, they're sitting in there; they were helping draft the international treaty on the criminal court. They drafted international treaties on disarmament, on test mm. bans. They play a very active role, and you know, and, and sometimes the smaller countries. Uh, uh, who don't have big diplomatic staff of themselves basically co-opt the NGOs to represent their interests in there to to provide the expertise. Uh, global global warming is a case in point. You know where the the NGOs have some very serious expertise on uh, on climate change and its effects, and that they're brought in to wield the arguments against the oil companies and the other <laughs> civil society actors who who are operating on behalf of the uh, of the US. Great.
0: Um, well, I think that's about all we have time for. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And um, I want to remind everyone to, <laughs> one, buy the book. Um, you can go to justworldbooks.com or your local bookseller or
1: All um, uh, the online people that are selling it,
0: yes. Um, it, it is available now. Um, and, and I'll and be
1: signing copies at the UN in a few weeks. I don't think we fixed a date yet at the UN. St- stay
0: tuned for a confirmed date and time for... Uh, Ian's appearance at the UN in in New York, as well as other events in DC and um, hopefully the West Coast next year um, and other locations. Um, Also, follow us at JustWorldEducational.org for uh, the updates on the tour, uh, which we're titling the US, the United Nations, and the World. Um, So, thank you. Yeah, we should
1: really, um, cartoons, lots of cartoons. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, one of the things that really
0: stands out about the book is that it is very um, irreverent and humorous um, and, and, and lighthearted in a way. It, it's it's um, particularly well, given the topic. Uh, yes. It's not dry. Uh, and
1: here, in case you can see it, is a picture of Kofi and Annan and Nani and Annan with the Muppets, which we claim is them meeting the Permanent Five. Um, but, <laughs> but that's irreverent,
0: so we shouldn't say things like that. <laughs> um, well, thank you, everyone, for joining us.
1: Ah, somebody just floated a like across there, didn't <laughs>